Welcome to this week's episode of The Daily Horror Habit, a podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie reviews and discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always, be warned, these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. For this week's episode, I'm joined by Rumorg Magazine's video game editor, Evan Miller, to chat about the urban legend aughts horror of Mark Pellington's The Mothman Prophecies, in which reporter John Klein, played by Richard Gere, is grappling with the sudden passing of his wife, who claimed to see a moth-like figure just before her death. Now, two years later, John mysteriously finds himself in the town of Point Pleasant, where townsfolk are reporting sightings of a similar moth-like creature. So without further ado, Evan, welcome to the show. Hey Jay, pleasure to be here. They just can't keep us apart. We like each other too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I uh, I enjoyed talking so much with you on two occasions now, uh, in addition to Twitter, but for uh, Safe Room, the podcast uh, that I do with my co-host, Neil Bolt. And, you know, the love of horror is not contained to any one single medium. So getting to chat uh, horror movies with you seemed like the uh, obvious next step. Hell yeah. And I mean, you, uh, yeah, you asked me if, if I had a... I, movie from last year or more recent flick that i thought you know more eyes should get on and uh sadly uh being a parent of a young child and kind of working two jobs is, is uh <laughs> it keeps my time that i'm able to give the movies to a minimum but uh well and playing games you know so thank you for letting me choose kind of like a movie that was very important in like my upbringing um this movie like effed me up and I, I don't i don't exactly know why but we're gonna try to pick it apart and figure that out today i suppose for a uh, a first time chat i almost would prefer to talk about a movie that has a little more relevance or a little more of a connection to you or that you have to it rather than just being like you know pick something that you enjoyed last year which is generally like the kind of mini pitch that I kicked out to people that I've had on previously before. So it's like, yeah, I know them. We have kind of this this basis for what we've uh, discussed in the past and now getting to chat with you for the first time about horror movies. Uh, I think that that's a better, uh, like a better foundation for us. But I guess in sort of getting to pick your brain about horror movies and specifically sort of like your relationship with them, I'd like to start with the icebreaker that I uh, use with all first time guests and asking if uh, you remember the first horror film that left an impression on you for uh, for better or worse. Yes, so it's kind of a weird answer. Uh, I remember the first horror movie I remember seeing was Aliens. It didn't affect me. I just thought it was amazing. I just loved it. You know, I was kind of a messed up kid. I don't know why things didn't really get to me I, or whatever. But I am going somewhere with this because concept of alien abduction as a kid, I don't know if I had sleep paralysis and I don't remember it, or if it's just my brain is just wired to... I, it's a scary concept. Like, an alien can just pop in into your room. Nobody's the wiser. Nobody knows. They literally open up a, a light portal into your room and just take you or whatever. That's freaky shit. When you're a kid, that's yeah. freaky shit. Like, that's freaky shit. So, still is. But, uh... So I saw Alien, liked Alien, no problems there. And I, we're talking like five years old, like my parents just did, whatever, for whatever reason, they didn't, they were like, well, he seems to be interested in it, let's just let him watch it. So I watched that, loved that. Then I watched Exorcist. The medical stuff in The Exorcist freaked me out. Only that. Absolutely. Everything else was fine. <laughs> Her getting injected would die, terrified. So then I was over at my friend uh, Oleg's house, shout out to Oleg, wherever you are. Uh, and we were up late at night, you know, to staying up too late. And uh, some 
and it's funny because I had no idea what this movie was until like last year. Twitter actually helped me figure it out, and now it's kind of I don't know if it's has like a resurgence in popularity or if it's being I don't know. The internet's kind of kicking it around, but it's called the McPherson tape. Oh, and okay. it's alien abduction, and it it was presented when I saw it on TV as you know like a news reporter like something like a like they, it was framed like it was real uh so i th- i'm 99 sure that's what it was but you know how your memory plays tricks on you from when you're a kid you, you pull bits and pieces from different media and you're like oh this was this and um kind of like revisiting your childhood at home or place where you grew up and you're like wow this is tiny um but anyway so right. <laughs> so yeah i'm 99 sure that's what it was and it scared the pants out of me like the uh i'm kind of even afraid to go back and watch it now like i haven't even really seen it again but i just remembered just enough i, I, I rewatched enough to confirm okay that's what it was um and it, you know that found footage uh family being you know uh visited by extraterrestrial forces yada 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 so that scared scared me and then uh i feel like that's a direct kind of correlation uh between mothman because it's similar kind of things in that you know supernatural entities are just out there and you're powerless and um you don't really know what they want they could come for you at any time i think mothman is a little uh a little less scary i thought you know than an alien coming and and abducting me from my bedroom but uh, as this movie shows it can be pretty freaky dealing with the Mothman as well, so. Yeah, I think that that seems like the natural progression from that sort of like the fear of the abduction, the fear of the unknown, and that kind of just like having such an impact on your life and then bleeding into something like Mothman that doesn't have as fantastical of a premise. It's much more self-contained and isolated, and yet it's still that kind of same primal fear. But, you know, it was funny that you mentioned, um, taking it back for a sec to like The Exorcist, and that one moment that really stood out with you I have a couple of moments like that throughout my, you know, horror milestones or history or whatnot of watching movies at an early age and not really understanding why or rather not being necessarily terrified of them, but just they stood out because they were exposing me to things I'd never seen before. And they maybe weren't necessarily like super terrifying. It wasn't the type of thing where it was like, oh, I was scared of the dark all of a sudden. And it's like, oh, I had to cover myself with a blanket and stuff to fall asleep. So the monsters didn't get me type thing. But they like very clearly wore these films that stood out to me as presenting things that I didn't even know were sort of in the realm of possibility in movies or games or things like that. Like I think about kind of just discovering things like the evil dead or um, night of living dead or, you know, alien for that matter. And just like stumbling upon them on TV and it's like being enthralled with them, but initially not really terrified because I was so young. You don't necessarily understand what you're seeing. I guess maybe, the early on scares were very much kind of like, oh, loud noises or something like that, because that's very sudden and shocking. But if anything, you know, the older you get, obviously, and you have context in these things, certain elements of all of these movies become much more terrifying because of sort of the parallels maybe between these fantasy worlds and our own worlds, which is why that moment from The Exorcist that you mentioned, I mean, I just revisited that for the first time in a long time, probably last year or the year before that, And that's the scene, the medical scene is the one that stood out to me because it kind of channels that uh, childhood fear of going to the doctor and, you know, having how varying degrees of invasiveness, but just like having tests done on you or being put in a machine, your parents can't follow you in there or something like that. And I think that 
that's one of the elements of, you know, it's why I like this icebreaker so much is kind of getting to the root of why certain movies have stuck with us. Cause you know, growing up, you watch a lot of movies just based on varying childhoods, or that seems to be the, uh, the thread that connects me and so many of the guests that I have on and that it's like, yeah, plopped in front of the TV or you go to a friend's house and you get to watch like three or four movies that somebody's older brother recorded off of TV with them. And then the little moments that stick with you all those years later that when you revisit them, if anything, they kind of grow more terrifying now that you have that context and, you know, have a little bit more life experience than when uh, when you watch some of these movies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have no frame of reference. Um, and like you say, with the medical stuff and exorcist, like that's the scariest thing I could imagine because I, I had things, you know, when I was a kid, I was in sick kids here in Toronto for various things and uh, they didn't know what it was and the testing and all that that goes into it so yeah that projection of like oh shit you know like what they're trying to figure out why why um I'm totally drawing a blank on her name Reagan you know why she's you know having you know those episodes of feeling feeling crummy so yeah and I think with Mothman uh, I saw the film, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, right around when I was in grade eight, which is what we say here in Canada. We say grade eight. I don't know if that's, um, what is that? That's like, okay. Middle school in the state. Middle school, yeah. So I was in grade eight. Yeah. And uh, so my family's actually half American uh, and we're from the South, South Carolina. So oh, okay. I've actually been through West Virginia. Uh, I tried to, yeah, I tried to go to get a detour to Point Pleasant after I saw this film, but it never happened. But um, four hundred miles off of uh, your family's route, yeah, just to see. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even think the Mothman statue, that that chrome Mothman statue, is even up erect as of yet. <laughs> at that point, that shiny chrome ass that it has—it's great. Have you have you seen that statue? It's incredible. I have, yeah. Okay. I've seen some pictures online. <laughs> I, I want to give it a hug so desperately I have to go see it. So uh, that's kind of a thing I have is like I try to get photos with statues and I'm, I, I try to hug them in the photo. That's like a weird kink that I have. Anyway, so, <laughs> so, uh, so that, like, I knew of West Virginia. So that probably made it a little freakier too right because it's like oh shit like this is i mean they're they're always try to say based on truth based on true events and here's a place and wow this could be happening in your neighborhood and stuff but yeah to to have been near there really made it mm -hmm. yeah stick out and you know whenever they say like this movie's based on a true story you always want to ask well how based is this but uh you know i have actually family from down south too and so for a long time for the first whew, maybe 15 years of my life, my family every summer or sometimes during the winter would like pile into our minivan and drive, I don't know, 1,200 miles down to Tennessee and pass through West Virginia and things like that. And even though I don't necessarily like, sure, how much can you really get from a place just by driving through it? But it's like after a while, when you stop in all these little small towns along the way, you get a sense of just like, it almost feels like it's its own state or its own universe to a certain degree. Like when you're passing through these small places that are just off the highway or they're 20 minutes off the highway and you feel like you're going into this other world where almost anything's possible. And that was one of the qualities of Mothman that I was really taken with in that it has such a 
wide sweeping supernatural premise in terms of just like Mothman can go from state to state, country to country potentially, but the isolating nature of that story and sort of the small town setting of the film and whatnot, I think it does such a fantastic job of making it feel so much more grounded than or rather just grounded enough that the urban legend nature of the Mothman plays really well in this. And it's something that I think sometimes, you know, in urban legend films, when they cast the world or the setting as being like, okay, it's going from state to state or it's affecting this character in one side of the world and then this other character, you start to get lost a little bit, like in the translation almost, it feels almost too big all of a sudden. You're like, okay, well, this feels like it's getting stretched out just to appease the sense of like, okay, this can happen on the East Coast, this can happen on the West Coast, but in this and isolating that small town and kind of channeling a little, maybe not as directly, but maybe like a little twins peaky almost, where it's like, once you enter, you can't leave, or that idea, you end up somewhere and you don't really know how you ended up there, was something that I think really fueled the urban legend nature of obviously this movie. Um, and it was something also that I found comforting going into it because, you know, honestly, this was the first time I'd watched The Mothman Prophecies. And it was a film, when this movie came out, I think I was in, I think I was in fourth grade, maybe? 2002, 2003? Uh, I was I very young. Be, so I was in elementary school. I would have protected you. I would have. <laughs> but it was the type of thing where it's like, I remember the advertisements for it. It's funny growing up in that era and sort of becoming aware of horror but not really like having parents that watched a lot of horror. Mm -hmm. I'm much more reminiscent of, or rather, I have greater memory of a lot of like advertisements or trailers or like the uh, ads in like Wizard Magazine or things like that or comic books from back in the day. Yeah. And then not getting to see those movies for like, I don't know, five or 10 plus years later in some mm -hmm. regards. And so going into Mothman, I very much had the idea that like, okay, this is gonna be the standard sort of like spooky ghost jump scare movie from the early 2000s type thing. And to go into it and see the direction they took and it to be the complete opposite of that was super refreshing for me. Um, you know, coming to it now at almost 30, um, it's held up really, really well, I think. Um, so for you, I'm curious, like what about specifically, what is the first thing that comes to mind with Mothman prophecies that makes it such a memorable movie coming out of the aughts era of horror? Um, I think, like you say, it was uh, it was like a breath of fresh air at that time. Like I was, I was kind of eating up any kind of like supernatural thriller, you know, horror movie at that time. Um, if if I couldn't go see it in the theater, at least uh, by the time it hit home video, and uh, I think what makes this even more special to me is like I believe I sat down to watch uh, this movie rent rented uh, with my mom and my stepdad so like we're, you know we're three people deep in the room like it's not like i'm watching this late at night by myself or something um and after the credits rolled like uh i was tidying up and they were up went up to bed or whatever and like i had to like shut the light off and like you know adrenaline like i just ran up the stairs uh like didn't want to even look behind me i was, I was so f disturbed and i think part of the reason is like you say it's um, it's it's surprising like how effective it is at what it's trying to do. It, it doesn't bite off more than it can chew, and yet even by the end, it's somehow grown in scale. Like I, I know it's kind of the one major set piece thing this movie has going for it at the the very end, and I think in like viewing that's that's probably the least 
my least favorite part of the film uh just because it leans heavy into just like oh you know like that i don't know it's almost like the james cameron titanic uh <laughs> vibe where it's just shit's just going completely like they're just i don't know we can spoil right yeah okay, absolutely. The bridge, right and the bridge is collapsing and the cables are snapping and you got scream stock scream sound effects going on in the background and electrical cables just flying into people's faces and stuff and it's just very like yeah it's i mean it's intense and it's supposed to be and it's good in that sense it's not a it's not it's not a poorly done scene or anything by any means but i think the rest of the movie just keeps this kind of slow smoldering burn going really so effectively oh but you know what now that i'm talking about it i rewatched for the podcast um I think the same night you did, because I saw you were watching, I was like, okay, I'll boot it up, let's do it. And uh, the beginning's kind of similar in that sense, is like, it's very, you're just like, okay, what's happening? Like, I feel like I've seen this before. You've got that intro with like, oh yeah, they're very happy. You know, they're making love in the, the, it's like very cheesy, like movie at that time stuff going on. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, they're going to buy the house and the whole opening credits she, him he's just at work and it's establishing that he's a you know reporter for the um washington post and yet you know his wife it's just like it's just like close-ups of like her in the shower and like you know it's just like very <laughs> yeah. just like okay okay so that's her character she's she's the she's the cute the love object like it's just like you know it's right. pointless and it's deborah messing which is just weird it's funny that's her but um so you're just watching that and it's like okay and then um once the accident happens and i think it just i don't know it's like when i think about the movie it somehow elevates it even more than when i'm watching it but maybe it's just because i keep looping the scenes of uh is his name will Patton? yeah like how good is will Patton in this movie uh, I love Will Patton, but this is what made me a fan. Like, this is the movie that, this is the role that, like, he's so effective as this uh, small town guy who's just, you know, experiencing things that he can't explain and um, trying to come to terms with that. And Richard Gere showing up, and I love that too. Like, just the Richard, like, is this, this is the third night you've you've shown up, and he's like, "Excuse me." So, um, it's just that feeling that that. I don't think a lot of movies at that time, I don't know, did very well. Like it's it's um, it's it's kind of puzzling why this movie is so effective. I think it has a really good attention to detail. I think uh, there's little things, like even at the beginning of the of the film, part of the credits like reflected in her lipstick, just like really detail oriented things that like I I don't even think I've ever noticed that before the other night when I rewatched it. So. And it has CG, and it's like it's early two thousand CG, but it's like tasteful. Um, not excessive, either. No, it's yeah, matter. it's not, and it's it's strange because like it's Richard Gere, man. Like I don't care about Richard Gere, <laughs> and yet you know, right. like I'm I'm I care about John Klein. And what's interesting too is that it's based on the book. Um, Mothman Prophecies, which I think John Keel wrote in the sixties. Uh, of his time in Point Pleasant, which is a very different book, more more aligned with like UFOlogy stuff, like Men in Black, um, 
there was there is obviously there's Mothman stuff in, in that, but I think so. John Klein's kind of like the John Keel character. It's like a, a writer who's you know yeah, and I think that's clever the way they did that. Kind of um, it could have been a lot worse, especially at that time. They could have done a beat for beat, like you know, who knows? Well, it feels very much more focused. Like I didn't obviously read the book or anything and I just found like sitting down to watch the movie and then obviously just googling about it I was like oh it's based on a book or adapted from a book and I'm so happy that they leaned into the Mothman it's very interesting because like they lean into the Mothman angle and completely discount or don't even address the UFO angle of that book and yet the movie itself doesn't end up being all about the Mothman itself which sounds so weird to say you know what I mean like it's not really about because that was what my fear was, is that it's like, okay, we're going to get a lot of sort of like little jump scare moments or a lot of like in the corner, there's like a dark figure with wings, yeah. like a bunch of moments like that. And the movie never turns you really, into that. Yeah, you really think there's going to be some sort of creature shot, creature effect shot, or, right. or or an attempt at that with using digital or something like that. And it doesn't give it to you. I mean, it kind of does. You see the Diablo 2 face uh, as he closes his, right. his bathroom mirror and there's suddenly the... Mm-hmm. The, looks, I swear it looks like the Diablo 2 uh, case guy. He's, <laughs> right. he's there. Yeah, it's um, it's like when I'm watching it, it's it's like I'm saying this is cheesy, and then I my my gut doesn't feel that way, and I know that's like a reaction that you have to kind of uh, to to laugh at things that that frighten you. But um, yeah, something I don't know. I think a big part of it, and it's something you touched upon in terms of like the way that the movie opens. It opens like it's a completely different genre. It almost opens a little bit reminiscent of like a rom-com or something, right? You have that very cheesy moment between the two of them where they're like, lovebirds, he's telling his boss like, oh, I'll just blow off this Christmas party or whatever, or don't bother me, it's five o'clock, I'm shipping out, which is like, that's not really something I would think that most investigative journalists ever do, right? It's kind of like, hey man, you got this fucking story. You're not just going to ship out because it's five. But but like in terms of... Oh, my bad. Love conquers all. Yeah. He's got a fiance. <laughs> Them going to the house and then, you know, like about to bang on the floor and then the realtor opens the doors and it's like, matter of fact, it's like, oh yeah, these two people are about to fuck in this mm. house they don't own yet, right? It's kind of just like, okay, this is very cheesy. I could see this coming and whatnot in terms of just the whole vibe of the intro. And then it really does kind of like turn on a dime when they have that moment where something flies in front of the car, which I don't actually know if you really see. You kind of just see their reaction or Deborah Messing's reaction. She swerves, of course, and she hits her head, which then, of course, will eventually reveal that like she has, uh, I think it's brain cancer of some sort. But then she ends up dying as a result. But just before she dies, like she has this obsession with this mothman figure or the sense that something is watching her and then of course richard gear finds her notebook and it's got all these disturbing drawings of moth-like figures and whatnot where did that trope come from because i was thinking about this in that scene and i'm piecing my i'm 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 thinking about things like sinister and things like you know that do this kind of thing and i'm like mothman can't be the first to have a creepy drawing montage yeah um you know i don't want to get the dates wrong on these things but it would not surprise me if that came out of like just at the cusp of the aughts like j-horror that feels like something that would be very j-horror-esque like a pulse or like a grudge or something like that the idea that like there were these drawings of these things that people see and then of course they end up dying so it's like what was the first sign that 
they were kind of falling down this rabbit hole or whatnot. It's like, oh, well, they started drawing fucked up shit around the house. Because you're right, this era in itself is like very heavily influenced by that or very responsible rather for having this become like a trope that you see in movies, you know, probably forever horror movies and the kind of like creepy drawings. I think of, um, it came out, must have been two years now, uh, Z, which was on Shudder where like this kid draws the entire mural on his wall of like this creepy imaginary monster friend that he has. And you know, that can still be very effective even if it is like this trope that is uh, pretty played out at this point. But you know, Mothman did it right, I think, in terms of just introducing it very subtly and then not discussing it or have it appear again for like probably almost 45 minutes or an hour. And then when it pops up again later in the film and you see, oh, somebody else in this small town that saw the Mothman did the same types of drawings. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh shit, like that's fucking creepy. This the idea that again, like the urban legend itself has traveled from, I don't know how many miles away it is, but just has been able to travel across the country in a way where even though the scale is very small, the implication that just because you leave, like you're not necessarily safe. Yeah. And, uh, and I just think, Indrid Cold is one of the baddest motherfuckers ever to be in the game. I mean, what name like Indrid Cold? Like shit, goddamn. Uh, sounds almost iconic as like dropping Hannibal Lecter or something. Right? Like Ingrid Cold is just yeah. And I had to look it up too because or I had to pause and look it up when I was watching because they say it so matter of factly and so quickly that you're like, did I misunderstand what he just <laughs> said? And you're just like, it's such a an interesting combination of words that you know it's not at like. I don't know. It's it sounds a lot more menacing, even though it is these just two very kind of like plain Jane words instead of it being something super, super overtly sinister. But it's just yeah. I don't know. There's something about that combination of words where you're like, that sounds like a dangerous motherfucker without being like the monster or something like that. Or, you know, Jason Voorhees or something like that. Yeah, because, again, that whole scene of uh, when when Richard Gere first or sorry, uh, John Klein first um speaks mm. to Indrid Cold, uh, you know, yeah. on paper, that's the cheesiest shit in the world. Like, I even sent you a mm. gif before we had, uh, before we had seen her <laughs> just at, like, of the chapstick thing, like, uh, you know, that's just, and it, but it's great, like, this, the scene is so gripping, and it's like, I think of that scene, I think of, but again, I think Will Patton's character is the guy who, you know, says like, oh, you know, he's hearing voices from the sink and that it tells tells him that uh, its name is Indrid Cold. And he kind of does this like little, if you rewatch the scene, he does this little like punctuation after Indrid Cold. He's like, my name is Indrid mm. Cold. And then he does this like, mm, with his lip. And I think that really <laughs> sells the name too. I think Will should get uh, some of the credit for, for that because he really sells it. But um, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I think that I was going to ask you what you think of Richard Gere's performance, because I think that's why initially when I was watching this again, like I didn't really have a lot of maybe positive expectations just because of maybe sort of somewhat biases. The arrows released in Richard Gere, who's like not exactly well versed in horror and all these things. But I think Richard Gere himself, like being so unaccustomed to horror is what makes this movie in terms of presenting the urban legend without the urban legend itself necessarily coming like the movie itself has these cheesy moments somewhat when you're watching it but there's something about the way like matter of fact nature with which they present the idea of the mothman uh urban legend and things like that that 
he's just supposed to be like this journalist, matter of fact kind of guy who's not super outspoken or he's pretty unassuming in most ways other than being like Richard Gere. Uh, but there's something in that in the way that he carries it that it never feels ridiculous i suppose in a way you know what i mean like sometimes when you watch these types of movies where they talk about whether it be an urban legend or curses or spirits or whatever whoever the protagonist is comes on so strongly that you're like okay this is kind of farcical at this point but with him it's so matter of factly and i think that that really ties into the way in which they tackle it in that okay is this is there really a moth-like monster out there that is visiting people and doing all this strange shit or is this somebody that is grappling with the reality that like they're suffering from the trauma and PTSD and these things from like losing their wife and the love of their life so suddenly or their fiance as it were. Um, and that's an element of the ways in which this film is handled that I think it actually does it a great service because something you said earlier, you're like, well, when I'm watching it, some of these moments are cheesier than I remember or maybe they don't necessarily always land as they were intended to. But then when you go back and you think about the movie, it's almost more terrifying or it's scarier when I think about it rather than in the moment. It is. It is. Yeah. And I think it has less to do with the direction and more to do with just the way that it's written. Because there's, again, there aren't a terrible amount of sort of like in your face moments where you see the Mothman or these moments that kind of like make you jump out of your seat. It's really not that kind of movie. And you even said it earlier, like it's a slow movie and if i would say it's a little drawn out it's like two hours long i it's think it feels a little drawn out very long yeah. but yeah but at the same time like i hang on to the brief moments of dialogue that really stick with me and you know i watched it i don't know two days ago and they still are sticking with me and i would uh, venture a guess that they're going to stick with me for a while and a big part of that i think is Patton's performance and i think he really does uh outshine gear because he does such a great job of just like being this guy that's in this strange town and you feel like you know this guy already and you can kind of get the sense that it's like, yeah, of course this guy is acting weird because he's definitely seen some shit. And I think that the way in which he sells a lot of those lines is far more affecting than Gear, who again is kind of like just matter of fact about everything. He doesn't really let much shock him. Whereas Will Patton kind of just has like this gaunt look on his face the majority of the movie and you find like you can kind of assume based on what you know about him like he's had a troubled past and then he's on the street and narrow like i think he makes a reference to like he quit drinking or something like that and then all of a sudden he's getting hit with this shit and it's like it's just the type of character that it's very much like a character actor like the perfect role for a character actor and that yeah. he gets to play this guy who is like perfect for having trauma and horrors shoveled onto him because he sells it so well yeah i mean i think yeah, like I said, he, he totally does eclipse Richard Gere in this film for me, but I'm a Will Patton stan ever since I saw this movie. <laughs> like, And he has similar characters and other things. Like, I mean, he's like the, he's yeah. like the, the, uh, oh man. Yeah. The fourth kind, he's like the sheriff and that, and it's like, okay, that's similar kind of vibes, but yeah, he's just amazing at, um, and I will circle back to Richard Gere because I know you're asking about that. But um, but Will Patton, like the first scene, you know, he's taking, he's just fed up. 
like he's taking him into his into his shower with him pointing a shotgun at him just be like he's had it enough like <laughs> we're seeing this is the first yeah. time we're seeing this character and he's just like okay i'm gonna kill this man in my in my bathroom right. like you're just like whoa hold on a minute you look like a nice guy like calm down uh mm-hmm. so yeah he's incredible uh, a million a million a million times uh that moment you mentioned i think is a great example not only of will pat you know selling this character so well but the approach that the movie took rather than what we kind of would assume a movie might from this era might lean into which is like a lot of kind of poorly shot or poorly animated like creature shots right you have these moments where it's like richard Gere's car breaks down in the strange town backwoods and he goes up to the door and the guy pulls a gun on him right away and you're like what the fuck is going on? you just feel like you get the rug pulled out from under you mm-hmm. And then Will Patton drops that amazing line where he's like, this is the third night in a row this motherfucker's come up to my house banging on the door asking for help. And that was the moment for me where I was like, not only did I gain respect for the movie and going the opposite route of what I thought it was going to lean into, but also like such a smart way to instill, obviously, confusion, but also like start to plant those breadcrumbs for like, what are we about to unpack here? Like, is this guy full of shit is this guy just like a crazy drunk who's just like laying blame on the first person he finds is there something more sinister and the weave in which the mystery of this movie is really kind of like woven is really really terrific in the way that and i think you know a minute ago we were talking about how it's kind of long but at the same time i think that in that maybe a little bit too long of a length it at least kind of like understands the pacing for introducing the characters, the mystery angle, and then really like sowing a lot of doubt in the different uh, protagonist or like the different characters that we meet. Um, And that I think is really central to just Pellington's handling overall of like the urban legend horror as being the foundation for what is mostly like a mystery, maybe a little bit of a thriller, but not much. But I think that it does such a good job of like being this really interesting horror hybrid that feels ahead of its time in a way which i think would probably make sense and i think you even referenced it like this movie was sort of like middling in terms of its reception when it came out or it was just a film that like came out and then there isn't a lot of this sort of resurgence surrounding it maybe that we see like a lot of other horror movies from this era getting or maybe there's people are starting to come around to it but it doesn't necessarily feel that like the Mothman Prophecies is a film that I either see in passing being talked about or like people mention. You're suggesting it is the first time I've thought of this movie in probably 10 years or something like that. No, and that's exactly why, you know, I, I think more people should check it out because, uh, mm. and, and that could have been why at the time it wasn't as well received as, yeah, I think it was a little ahead of its time. It, it, was, it wasn't, um, you know, it's almost not a horror movie. Uh, it, and and you know like I laughed because the 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 rating thing comes up at the beginning and it just says like rated PG thirteen for uh, violence some language and, and terror or something like that I was like <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen just something like three things like that and it's like one it's just terror right. anyway I thought that was funny but yeah it's um and you know I can see if this kind of stuff doesn't freak you out you'd be bored to tears maybe with, with this movie um, but if you have any kind of bone in your body that deep down like questions supernatural stuff or 
that kind of a thing or cryptids or whatever whatever you want to you want to say um you owe it to yourself to check this out because i think it's runtime is a good thing overall because that's how it maintains this slow um edge of your seat kind of feeling to it and then i think when it gets to that that final scene with the bridge i think that's kind of where i that's maybe also why i'm not too keen on it it's just because it it feels like such a slow build up to that point and then it's so much all at once and i'm kind of just like hey what happened to the creepy pace we were going at you know Ooh. like i missed that um and it's almost like it has so many quiet moments like the the scariest parts in this movie are so quiet there's not a lot of loud accompaniment and also the the um musical scores by tom and andy or whatever and they've done like the only other thing i know them from is like rules of attraction the movie uh so i have Ooh. no frame of <laughs> reference for for them really but they uh i think they do a good job of um laying down some like moody kind of i think of that whole like montage at the beginning when deborah messing's like getting ready and stuff and it's this kind of like early 2000s just like uh, guitar just like wah, 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 wah. <laughs> and it's like it's 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 of its time but it's it's really fitting like it suits the, the film and then um yeah like i think mark pellington his attention to detail with some of the trans i think he's like a transition master he's like a jump cut master or something mm. because all those are so effective in this movie and just throwing shit at you like just just with the with the weird moth stuff and his clever like i think the very first shot of of the movie yeah isn't it isn't it a camera slowly pushing through branches coming into the window yeah, of the of where he's sitting or someone's sitting or i can't remember but there's a very sort of like voyeuristic mm-hmm. approach to or otherworldly approach to a lot of those types of shots, which I think perfectly captures and it's more effective. You know, there's a lot of, and uh, to build off of what you said, like there's a lot of quiet moments that are the most memorable moments. And that's something that I think makes this film so effective in that there are these very little subtle things, whether they be a line of dialogue or the score kicks in or the camera handling that really does tie into this idea that like there's a presence around us or these characters for that matter and i think that is what is so important to crafting that atmosphere and it's more effective than anything that they could literally show you on screen like monster wise or whatnot just the idea that there's something there and you know that does tie in i think to that length of the film where it's like that's apparent from the first shot and it's apparent from the last shot where there's this idea that through the camera lens like it looks like okay there's something there other than obviously the director behind the lens or the audience watching it kind of just the way the camera almost like levitates a little bit or there's one or two shots where it's like an overhead shot of a town or the woods or something and it's not just like a static shot it's very dynamic in the way that it's swaying almost like something with wings on it and you know that's a brief moment but that moment is far more effective than you know showing us the shadow of a creature or something like that yeah, and the and the scene where the woman's seeing it from her, it's just the the window, and it's just the light on inside the house, and it's just her face of just like um, puzzlement and, and like terror, like she can't understand what she's seeing, and you've got these strange camera movements, and it never cuts to what she's seeing or anything like that. Um, 
Yeah, it's really good with that. Well, that's an element too that I think is really important in terms of just, again, like doing something that is very minimalistic, but it ends up being more memorable and it ends up being scarier because at the end of the day, like it's, you know, I've probably beaten this horse to death on the podcast any number of times. Like there's nothing that you can show somebody that's going to be scarier than what they have kind of like been building it up to in their head. And I think that that is what is so effective, especially about when they're carrying out the interviews with the town folks, you know, obviously Will Patton in particular, but also that woman that they visit. And she's describing the size of the Mothman in that one scene. And I think she says, she starts by saying like, well, I saw it standing out in the backyard underneath the tree and its head was one foot away from the tallest branch. And then she pauses and she's like, that would make him about eight feet tall. Like that is so much more terrifying than again, showing us like a shitty outline of a poorly rendered monster or something like that, or just a guy standing out there. Like, I love the idea of describing it, but then almost like underselling it initially, but then hitting you with that punchline of like, that motherfucker's eight feet tall. Like that is not normal. Um, And then of course, you know, you have Will Patton who talks about sort of the um, hearing voices, right? And then like, it's not so much what the voices are saying, but it's just more that, you know, it's not that he's hearing, just hearing voices. It's like the voices are coming from the sink. And that's an element that I think, you know, you've seen that in other movies or it makes me think of like it, yeah. right? The classic miniseries when you hear whispering coming from there, but just not even having to really show us that, but him recalling that and seeing his reaction and his response and kind of like the way his face contorts and almost recoils when he's repeating that after something that's happened, I don't know, a day ago or days ago, Um, It's one of those things that like just seeing his recollection of it and how it's affecting him is more terrifying than them like literally showing us that moment in real time, which actually leads me into my next question for you. Throughout the film, they do uh, a lot of sort of, uh, what's the word, dramatizations of people's encounters with the Mothman. You know, there's one of them where it's like two teens are having sex in a car out in the woods and then they talk about this bright light and how it interrupts them. And you kind of get this grainy, multicolored dramatization. It almost looks like something from like an A&E special or documentary or something. It's like kind of hokey and it's very sort of like low thrills or low uh, uh, production value and whatnot. How did you find those moments? Because it's some, it's a stylistic choice that they do, I don't know, three or four times throughout the movie. How did you feel that that uh, impacted sort of the overall impressing upon the viewer like okay these are these different recollections of this supernatural event. Well, i think it's awesome because it, it, it's at once familiar like you say it is it's very um yeah just like you're watching a tv show and it's like actors recreating whatever and even like to go back to my, my boy will Patton again with, with the fourth kind that movie's fucked up like we're showing you a recreation. Oh, but here's the real thing. It's like they're both recreations Ooh. on top of each other. And that movie just kind of like, I don't know. I like that movie, but it's not good. But uh, anyway, I will stop talking about the fourth <laughs> kind. Um, but this movie, I think the key to to it, and you, you touched on it too, is like it gives you just enough for you to put yourself into that character. And it leaves you there. It doesn't. It doesn't over. It doesn't hit you over the head with it, or it doesn't insert too many of these like cheesy kind of. So when it's doing those recreations, you know, you're just seeing their faces. You do see the the figure. I think there's that great shot of that kind of like. I don't know how he did it, but it's kind of like the light 
hitting the lens in a certain way that where the the you know there's that mothman Indrid cold figure and he's like too thin and the head's like almost like a sliver and it's just like lumbering there mm-hmm. like you know and then they draw that connection mm-hmm. to the to the nurse and the thing being like she knew she was drawing angels or whatever even that like to say that is so cheesy but i got yeah. goosebumps when it when that figure transitions from Indrid cold standing there to to that guy again and back and then it, it also is the outline of that thing at the chemical plant where where they're speaking to the the couple that saw it that had the sighting so yeah i think it, its strength is you know he knows mark seems to know um ju- how much just to give you that little push and then it's kind of like you're just just to push you to the edge and your imagination takes you the rest of the way and it's a weird tightrope act because somehow he's he's also just like giving you heavy early 2000s suspense thriller cheese at the at the exact same yeah. time. Yeah, it's it's crazy like how effective I find those scenes because that scene of of them recalling freaked like that scares the hell out of me. And that like I said, that woman where she's recalling the tree, uh, Mothman near the tree, also very chilling for me and and Will Patton talking about the sink. So all those are great um, in my in my eyes. Well, I think that he does a great job, Mark does a great job of not beating over the head with it because they start to sow so much doubt in both the protagonist, but also everybody that you meet, right? And I think that that is the ways in which that he kind of like morphs again, the urban legend nature and the sort of like demonology that might be behind that, but then really presents it as like, okay, it's almost sort of schizophrenic in the way in which that Richard Gere goes down that rabbit hole, right? Of trying to becoming obsessed with it and investigating the Mothman and all these sightings and doing interviews with the cop and everything like that. And, you know, shout out to Laura Linney who plays the cop and also sort of like the the like weird love yeah. interest that they kind of work in there. That's like the most sort of like early 2000s cliched, almost like rom-com shit where it's like something horrible happens to somebody and then it's like, oh, this woman like just falls into their arms basically but and I think, in terms of this yeah i was just gonna say i think that's the weakest thing of the, of the film is maybe their relationship yeah. it's not believable at all it's just like okay you're this you're right. this guy who's like messing with one of your town's folk has come three three days in a row is about to get shot and then she comes <laughs> and finds him again and is like oh i thought you thought i'd see you here and then there the next shot is literally yeah. them like sharing a a coffee or something in her cruiser as they watch Will Patton just shake his head and shut his door with a shotgun and she's like oh well time came you didn't show up and it's like (laughs) but it's cute it's fun it's fine you know but I think that's also Richard Gere like I think Richard Gere does a good job in this movie because I'm sure Mark was probably like hey like be a be a full person or try to be but don't let that get in the way of Mm -hmm. like the audience putting themselves as a surrogate into this, you know? And I think he, he walks yeah. that pretty well. Um, he's, like, disturbed that he drove across, entirely across the country in, like, an hour and a half. But he's not too disturbed. He's like, okay, well, I'm here now, so let me get my room and let me uh, get situations, right. you know? And it's like... Uh, so, yeah, I think... But, yeah, the Laura Lenny stuff, she's great in it. I just don't buy any kind of relationship them. Yeah, I mean, it's shoehorned in, but again, like to talking about in terms of just like Mark never necessarily beating us over the head with it, it is so thin that it doesn't really interfere 
with the overall plot of the movie or no. anything like that. It doesn't interfere with it, but you're just like, why even bother including that then? But then, you know, I guess it kind of just all ties into like why he's on the bridge at the end of the movie, right? It kind of, yeah. it feels like a plot device, but at the same time, it's not to the degree where you're like completely rolling your eyes out at the entire movie. You're like, will these two just like fuck or stop talking to each other and get back to why we're all here type of thing. Yeah. But And it does, it does go toward that. And I think that's also feeds right into the end scene just being kind of like whatever for me is because is it, it hinges completely on that and, and something that she recalls yeah. to him. And when they're like, you know, she's saying her dream and number 37 or whatever and the, the presence. And it's so it's such a hyper specific dream that like when you you'll see when you rewatch the the movie for a second time like i don't know if that's where your mind was going or if it kind of took you by surprise but when you're watching that and she's saying like presence and it's showing the imagery and you're just like okay well this is the end of the movie obviously like you're, right. you're showing me yeah. like this is clearly i know exactly what this is i don't know why i didn't pick up um but so it just unravels a bit on on second or third viewing but um it is what it is. I don't know how I personally I would have ended the film. I think it's it's a good ending. It's fine. It's a true that really happened. I believe Point Pleasant that bridge. So it's kind of cool they tied. You know. Yeah, it really did happen. It's the one aspect though that's kind of just like whenever you read about how based or it's based on a true story, you have to ask like how based because it's just like I love that line at the end of the movie where it was like uh, there was never an explanation for what happened. And then you look, and then like I googled it because I was curious. And the first thing it says is like there is one thousand yeah. percent explanation for why oh, this yeah. happened, <laughs> which I like. I don't really care, you know. It's one of those things where I was like, yeah, it's a marketing gimmick. Like I don't give a shit. Yeah. But it's one of those things that always makes me laugh because it was just like, yeah, I guess everybody wasn't on the internet every second of every day back in the day where they were just like watch this in a test screen, and then you're like googling it, and you're like horse shit, calling yeah. it. Uh, yeah. But I think that in terms of the ending overall. I don't have a problem with it because the execution is so good. It's just kind of like, okay, did they just kind of put this in there because they wanted to base it in some realm of reality, but also like, I mean, what other movie dealt with di major disasters in that time period of when this was released? It's like, yeah, Final Destination. Like if you destroy some shit and make it seem as if it's a natural event and then you kind of like lace it in this supernatural mystery and all of that, like, yeah, it's going to make that even more terrifying. So I understand why they went with that ending. Um, but to your point, though, like it feels so at odds with why I like this movie. And it's never like with something like Final Destination, I would recommend it because, yeah, it's filled with moments like that bridge collapse. You get that high body count and sometimes these ridiculous deaths. But with something like this, though, that bridge scene, I'm going to forget about in probably like a week or a couple of days, whereas these different interactions that Gear has with these characters and people recalling these very troubling events that they can almost barely bring themselves to explain why they're terrifying in general, other than saying like, yeah, there was an eight foot creature in my backyard. Like some of them, some of those moments that are so creepy, it's like, well, this is the third time this guy's shown up to the house. And it's like, what does that mean? And you never get an answer for that, which yeah. I love. Like there's no way for them to explain it. and. Furthermore, to like the director not beating over the head with things, we don't have to get a five minute screaming match of like, well, he's drinking again, like shit yeah. like that. You know what I mean? Which would feel very cliched and very kind of trope heavy, which this movie definitely has tropes in it, but it never feels like it leans into any of them to a detrimental or an overly detrimental degree. Um, and I think about in terms of like the min the overall with, the, you know, excluding the ending, the overall minimalist 
angle that this movie takes. And I just think about that scene when we finally get gear on the phone with, uh, uh, with injured Cole, which I love because you get this moment where he's talking to Will Patton on the phone and he's like, yeah, I'm standing right next to injured. <laughs> you want to talk to him here? Indrid, come here, man. Hello, John Klein. Yeah. <laughs> and he's got that fucked up voice, um, yeah. which funny enough, I looked into, and I only know this because I, you know, went on IMDb and went to the trivia section. They said that the director himself actually recorded his voice and played it over other people's audio or intermingled it with their audio. So that way there would be some semblance of a doubt of like, okay, this might be one of the other cast members fucking with him or one of the other characters. But then at the same time, like his voice distorts it just enough that you can't necessarily nail down who it is, which is something that I love because it's just like very strange. It obviously has some semblance of a person, but there's this little twang to it that feels very supernatural without, again, you know, having him do some kind of demonic roar or something like that. Yeah, and it's cool because like, the voice is whatever and it's creepy and it serves its purpose but then you get that great scene of them analyzing the audio wave like the, the the audio itself and the and and the guy being like well nothing from human vocal cords makes this you know, sound. <laughs> that's the most x-files fucking moments of the movie yeah, by the way it's like, it's like oh there's these are human vocal yeah, this cords is, this is electrical impulses or whatever and then as they're analyzing it the voice is like never really the same it's kind of like either higher pitched or lower because the guy's running it through whatever analysis or anyway that's a great scene um and that scene's been done like a million times and yet yeah i think i think the i think it's i I really would like to pick mark pellington's brain because i'm wondering if the movie he had in mind was this much quieter the, the moments that are so strong and that we really vibe with and that's kind of what he was going for and then the studio's like yeah but like this movie's getting made because of the bridge scene like that's that's just like that was the first thing that had to be okayed and that's the a lot of the budget's going to and blah 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 so it's like he's working within this frame the, the, these uh, parameters that um he can't he can't change uh which is obviously which is like mainstream filmmaking as we know right well also apparently uh just before like the day before they were shooting the studio was like yeah you're getting two million less than we said you could get and again it's one of those yeah exactly which is always what a director wants to hear but it's the type of thing though where it isn't it is an interesting uh thing to kind of think about in terms of are the elements that we love of this movie intended or are they byproducts of a studio, you know, kind of like sticking their hand in the pot and screwing things up? Um, which, if anything, I think it furthermore speaks to just like the most memorable part of the movie for me and the scene that is so creepy. And I didn't think it was that creepy in the moment, but then like we've been kind of talking about the idea when you think about this movie, those moments stick with you and they're far creepier then when you're actually kind of watching them in the moment and that's when he gets on the phone with uh injured cold and all of a sudden cold doesn't have to tell him he's supernatural he essentially kind of he shows him with his dialogue right and that he knows everything about john klein he knows things that he's done a second after they've occurred that he would only know if he was in the room with him and then the line of dialogue that really stands out to me the most probably out of anything is that Richard Gere asks, what do you look like? And Cold responds like, depends who's looking. And that again, I think is 
that's the most chilling part of this movie and that's one of the most chilling lines i've heard that's in a incredible. while because of yeah it's incredible because of not only what it implies but also the again the kind of like nonchalant nature of it and it's kind of like yeah it's you know i change based on who's looking at me yep. and that speaks furthermore to that urban legend idea where it's like there are some similarities, but nobody has the same story. If anything, this story would be far less interesting if everybody just recalls the same thing over yeah, and over. Yeah, what does he? What does he say as well? Like um, he, he asks, you know, what happened to my wife, and he says, um, "What's her name? Mary Klein cannot be, cannot be. Uh, what's the line? anyway? It's it's similarly just like a haunting. Like it just doesn't really answer mm. his question, but kind of gives him way more than he could ever hope to get and it's kind of like um, just crushing like his answer that he gives him and it's then he trails off with something like you'll you, you'll see her in time type thing you know mm -hmm. like you'll you, you'll you'll reconnect like but you'll be dead <laughs> or whatever she's you know. right it's just that <laughs> right. yeah that whole exchange is just masterful like it's uh it's so much more creepy than it it should be uh on paper like telling okay so there's a scene where richard Gere is in a cheap motel and this uh <laughs> high-pitched voice is on the phone and he's telling him the book what's in the book and he's saying chapstick and he's saying the, and it's just like okay what is what are we doing here like but yeah and when it's in motion when mark's behind the camera uh it's gold baby gold it's great moments like that really tie into that idea that like the Mothman is essentially like being the prophecy for or displaying omens of like catastrophes that are going to happen or things like that. And yet it's not necessarily a lot of like moments of it threatening people or any moments of it threatening people. If anything, it's giving warnings. Right. And that's an interesting thing that kind of bleeds into a lot of John Klein's conversations with uh, Alexander Leake, who is basically like the demonology expert who I think is supposed to be based off of the author of the Mothman Prophecies book. He's been around the block, yeah, he's seen, he knows stuff, right? That's what, that's what his yeah. vibe is supposed to be, yeah. Basically it says like, yeah, I went looking for him and then I got scared and I stopped looking. But he has this moment with John Klein where John Klein is trying to understand, he's like, why don't they, they being, you know, the Mothman Prophecy or uh, the Mothman, and him being like, come right out and tell us what's on their mind, that being this sort of like deity or being that we don't understand. And Leek has that fantastic line where he's like, well, you're more advanced than a cockroach. Have you ever tried explaining yourself to one of them? Um, and that I think, you know, I don't know if the movie needed to lean more into that, but I like that idea of presenting it as, it's not so much a monster, but this really like superior being, which I probably, that's probably the one element that I suppose, and you know, talking about it, that's probably the element of the book that was more in line with like the UFO side of things, right? This idea that there is a being that's greater and more advanced, and yet we want the answers, but there's no reason for it to ever explain itself to us because it's just so superior to us. And that's an element that I really liked that they applied to the Mothman and that, yeah, it does a lot of things that scare people and it scares them because yeah, it's strange, but also it's just, there's not being an explanation and, there, and the thing that is creating these questions not feeling it has a responsibility to answer anything. That's like a very weird relationship that I think really fits incredibly well with, again, a lot of the little minimalistic moments that we get throughout the film. Yeah, it's, it's kind of at once calms you like, oh, okay, Andrew Cold's not so bad. He can just 
He can just, he's just got more fingers and more pies than I do. That's fine. Whatever. Let him (laughs) do that. Um, And yet it's like, makes it even scarier because then you're just like, well, you know, so it's just this like, I mean, he, the, yeah, he has that line where he tells um, John Klein, you know, like, look at that window washer up there or whatever. Like he, if there's a car accident, you know, six blocks, he could probably see it. And we can't, you know. Does that make him any more, whatever, like uh, divine than than we are? No, he's just from where he's he, he is. It's just easier to see or whatever. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's like it really just thematically just brings everything, you know. And and that that whole scene with him and him like bestowing knowledge on him and refusing to take his meeting and stuff like it's it's pure just like giles like oh, I'm, the, I'm the knowledge man i'm gonna come in here and just like wave some books around <laughs> and tell you some stuff but it does come with uh the best line delivery in this film which isn't will Patton, shocker or injured cold shocker, yeah, shocker. mark fellington <laughs> is when he says hellish death realm I want to get that tattooed on my body. Sorry, I just love that sentence. Hellish <laughs> death realm. He's talking about the origin of the Mothman. Um, yeah, it's really good. It's it's really uh, effective. He's a great character, even though he's just pure, you know, cheese. Um, he's effective, mm-hmm. and he, he has those great lines. So the writing's really good. Who wrote this movie? Um, do you have the IMDb app? Yeah. So the Mothman prophecy was adapted for screenplay by Richard Hatem. Okay from obviously John Keel's novel and Richard Hatem also written hot films such as Under Siege 2 and he was a producer on Titans. Wow. The DC Mm, series. Okay. I don't know if you could have two more random things on your IMDb but you know each of those projects came with a check and for that we salute him. Of course. The Mothman Prophecy in terms of like again the script I think does so much heavy lifting in terms of because again like the way the movie looks it's like Other than the yeah. sort of like little moments that we mentioned where it kind of captures the essence of something watching you or some presence being there, like those moments are pretty fleeting and they're few. But again, it's like there's so many little moments of this movie that end up making it far more effective than it sounds or that it would be on paper, really. Like you said, if you just in describing, or I'm sure some people listening, like us talking about it, you're like, okay, that sounds like so unremarkable mm-hmm. and sounds like three other films I've seen and yet the entire way that these little elements kind of just like stack on top of one another it makes for something that while I'm thinking about it for you know two days later after watching it it just sticks with me in a way that again you know it doesn't feel like throwaway scenes or it doesn't feel like kind of like pulling straws to find something to talk about it feels like these are moments that kind of like seep into your brain the way that an urban legend should and the reason why urban legends spread And that's an element that, again, through the performances gets captured so well in that when people start recalling all of these strange events, like people begin to get more and more freaked out just by hearing other people talk about them, which in essence is how urban legends spread and things like that. Yeah, and it's funny because you mentioned X-Files and I feel like X-Files is similar in, I mean, but that had like a creature effect, you know, creature effects and like a lot more going on with on that side of things but even x-files like has these memorable super memorable moments characters lines um scenes and yet the show is like butt to look at like it just looks terrible half the time like the direction's not anything special 
they're driving around in mm-hmm. their shoulder pad suit jackets and their ugly ass Buicks <laughs> and it's just like I don't know it's not a very good looking show sometimes sometimes it is but I just feel like it has a similar DNA of like but maybe that's also a supernatural like maybe that's what they're like teaching in like uh, supernatural thriller direction 101 class where it's like make everything as boring <laughs> and, and like not stand outish as possible so that when something weird happens it pops you know like I don't know kind of ties in almost to like the thing I was going to end on is like this movie cost 30 million dollars to make and the whole time I was watching it uh, this is obviously before seeing that bridge collapse I was like how is this a 30 million dollar movie and you know even when you see the bridge collapse it's like I was reading about it how they did it and it's like yeah it's a one six scale model or something like that and it had I don't know a billion pieces that went into making it look as good as it looks and having it play out as well as it does and being the sort of like pinnacle for the time I guess after something like uh, Final Destination maybe or I don't know if people think it pales in comparison but the idea that they're able to recreate this sort of like natural disaster that's got a high casualty rate and all these things and it's this crazy spectacle set piece and it's like the last 10 minutes of the movie if that mm-hmm. it's a thing where the whole time I was thinking like damn they really paid Richard Gere a fuck ton of money to make this movie because I don't know where the rest of this budget went yeah it's it's weird like it's um it's and, and it's better for that like it, it really if it had that money sprinkled all throughout it I don't think I'd be sitting here like talking about it in this detail because you know that's the brilliance of it and uh I am by no means you know supernatural horror like this isn't my thing like it's not really what gets me i don't i don't seek it out but i'll never forget this movie it's like up there and in, in terms of and and yeah like i said like it's one thing when a movie scares you when you're a kid but when you when you think you've got your i know obviously when you're in grade eight like you were not grown up you were not i, I knew absolutely nothing but i just mean you got this feeling when you're that age that you're kind of like okay i know it scares me and i know I know what my limits are, and then here, here's this movie I watched that just like fucks me up completely. Um, and honestly, nothing really since. I, I can't really think of a. I mean, like when you first see Inside, you're like Jesus Christ. But uh, well, for me, it would be something like the ending of Hereditary. That was like the first movie of my adult mm-hmm. life. Obviously, I watched a ton of horror movies and stuff, and it's like I, there are plenty of movies I've enjoyed, but watching Hereditary opening night in the theater that was just my two friends and one person who decided to sit right behind us for whatever reason in the entire theater and watching this movie and having it have the buildup that it has and then getting to the penultimate moment in that movie and then of course you know I had the woman sitting behind me decide to scream as loud as anybody's ever screamed (laughs) at the ending which scared the fuck out of me but overall just like that being such a terrifying movie that kind of like has been a highlight of my adult life because it made me feel a sense of terror that I hadn't since I was a little kid. Like, that's a very special movie to me. And I could see Mothman prophecies being one of those movies where a younger age, you know, the idea that you could kind of like be in this place and be visited by this thing that basically shapes your understanding of reality. Like, for a very young person, that's a terrifying concept. That's a terrifying concept for somebody that's almost 30, and that's me. Like, that's a pretty creepy concept and to not have that you know I don't know if you want to call it the ideology of the movie or the the main driving force or horror force of the movie like 
that's a very easy thing that if you kind of like make one too many missteps, it kind of just like dispels all that magic. But the ways in which they pull it off in this, it's far more memorable than it almost should be in a lot of ways. You know, talking about how on paper you're kind of like, yeah, this is like a bunch of people scared and that's about <laughs> it. But in the ways in which you kind of, you, whether it be the performances or the writing, like this movie sticks with you in a way that an urban legend horror movie should. Yeah, and I think maybe part of it too is being at that edge of like more grown up, you know, um, I don't know, taste or whatever, but still having that imagination, that rampant imagination as a kid. And uh, I was Ooh. talking about how this movie kind of plays on the, on the, on uh, relies on you kind of taking it, meeting it halfway a little bit and, and running with your imagination Ooh. for it to really affect you. Like that was, I guess I was more in touch with that back then too, but yeah, nothing since has really got me the same way. It's like McPherson tape or whatever. Fire in the Sky was sometime after that one. God, that's another one. Jesus, uh, Fire in the Sky. That, that I need, the, Have you never seen it? So I haven't seen either of the ones you just mentioned. Oh, so we man. should definitely, I should definitely have you back on in the future to chat well, those because I have, let me get some those money. are two blind spots. Okay, let me get some money set aside for therapy for, for Fire in the Sky. It's, <laughs> it's like, that's what the podcast is for. Hey, well, it's like it's another one of those movies where humdrum, whatever, and then there's this moment where you're just like, I won't ruin it for you, but goddamn, I still think about that movie. Um, so yeah, bring on Mothman prophecies too, because ain't nothing gonna <laughs> gonna get me. So Mark, if you're out there, come on, man, let's do it. I have ideas. Well, it's funny. I was looking up uh, the director, and he I don't know that he's made many movies since this. He's done a lot of TV. Mm -hmm. He's done producing. I mean, he came from the music video side of uh, things, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think so. But let's see. He, he made a movie called Nostalgia in 2018. But yeah, I don't think he's done much horror after that. And that might have something to do with uh, the fact that the studio kind of like pulled the rug out from under him, but hey, he did a lot with the 30 million. I don't know how much more an extra 2 million would have changed, but if anything, uh, I think he did a really great job with what he was working with, and you know, he was lucky he had good source material and he had a good uh, a good screenplay writer, because the writing does a lot of heavy lifting here where maybe yeah. Richard Gere doesn't necessarily, for me at least. Yeah, but. yeah, no, you're right. I mean, Richard Gere is just like, he's just like nothing. Like, he's, he's exactly what he needs <laughs> to be and no more for this movie, and uh, I think that's how he is in a lot of stuff. Um, I mean, the only other movie I think I had ever seen Richard Gere in at the point where I first watched Mothman was like Primal Fear. Uh, was yes. the only other yep. movie because I, I liked Edward Norton and I just kind of went on a rampage and watched all of his stuff. Um, so, yeah. And I mean, maybe, who knows? Maybe Mark Valentin, like has the zero desire to ever do horror again and maybe this is so good because he's a guy who just kind of was like I don't like a lot of horror so I'm going to do my thing and then we'll see you know like sometimes an outsider mm -hmm. coming in can can kind of stir things up and do things that aren't uh, are a little less rigid and, and you know um, expected in the genre or, or what have you so uh, that's a whole other curiosity to me is that Mark Pellington like I do not know really anything else he's ever done and, and Mothman's still so like coveted in my mind um, for me um, I know he's a yeah, music video guy but that's a great point though in terms of just like an outsider coming in that 
you know, they probably have to do some prep in terms of like familiarizing themselves with elements of horror, but at the same time, like they don't feel probably as constrained as somebody that is so ingrained in the horror uh, realm does. You know, I, I'm sure you've done it too, where it's like you go on a tear of horror movies and you almost have to do like a palette reset sometimes in terms of like, all right, I'm not going to watch a horror movie every single night or the next consecutive viewings or something. It's like, got to throw something in the rotation, you know, like mix it up a little bit. Um, that's something that I find myself doing a little more frequently where it's like when you kind of have your nose to that horror grindstone every single day or, you know, the next five consecutive viewings or something like that, it's like sometimes you need to take a little bit of a step back, get a little perspective from something else, and then you kind of get a new appreciation for things. Because that was going to tie into something I was going to mention uh, earlier, just before I wrap up. Um, like the pacing of this movie, it's probably a good thing I didn't see this until I was a little older, because this is the type of movie I would have bounced off of pretty hard, just in terms of like the pacing when I was a young kid, at yeah. least. Um, you know, I'm had a little had a little more energy back in the day, needed something to like catch my interest right away. But this is the type of movie that like really feels comfortable in its own skin. And you know, that again, maybe comes back to the length of it, but it feels comfortable in its own skin and it lets things play out in a way that Ropper in terms of like giving the right attention to the different beats that it needs to. Um, even if maybe like the love interest stuff maybe feels like a little bit of padding in my opinion, but it's the type of thing though, where at least things are allowed to like have that breathing room so they feel a little more organic rather than just being like, jump scare, Mothman sighting, jump scare, jump scare. It feels a little more methodical maybe in unpacking the mystery that everything's tied into. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I don't, uh, it's like, I mean, I had undiagnosed ADHD as a child. I only found out I had ADHD until like last year. So yeah, I mean, like I, for sure, like, uh, and, and so somehow it, it kept me, uh, even back then, like uh, interested and, and yeah, it's weird because yeah, no interest in Richard Gere. No, I, I didn't know who Deborah Messing was. Who's this director? Mm. Will Patton. Now I'm a live fan for life. But uh, anyway, shout outs to Will Patton. I hope he. I hope he <laughs> knows how good he is in this film. Like I hope people come up to him and are like, uh, you know, injured cold or whatever. Like it's just like let him know. He deserves to know. I would hope. I would hope so. You know, it's one of those things where it's like. If I ever had the chance to talk to him at any point or anything like that, it's like, that would for sure be, and it's one of those things too, though, where I was thinking about this because, you know, I have a couple of buddies that like review or interview people in the movie side of things or games or whatever, mm -hmm. but you're always like, when somebody has such a wide body of a filmography or, you know, just in general, kind of like the nature of being a character actor and you've played so many different characters from outlandish to understated it's the type of thing where when you mention something like that, is it going to have like a visceral reaction from them and not a positive one? The idea where it's like all this shit I've done and you've mentioned something I haven't thought about for 20 years. You know what I mean? Where it's kind of like you hold it in regards as being a fan, but then it's like, does that person have that same relationship with it? Probably not. But at the same time, like, I guess you always hope that, uh, that they are good spirited about these things and can see how much it meant to, uh, to somebody that watched it. But I'm glad that this movie had a uh, an effect on you at such a young age, so we could talk about it all these years later. Because Mothman Prophecies is one that uh, you know it's great to come to one of these movies every once in a while because it makes me check my expectations and basically like remind me to like tell that voice in my head to shut up and just sit down and watch something and not think about like the time period it was, or then think about oh is it going to crib from this or that? It's just nice to kind of 
sit down and be pleasantly surprised by a movie that uh, I did not know anything else about other than like the trailer that I saw on TV, I don't know, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, whatever it was. <laughs> uh, so I thank you for that, Evan Miller. And uh, it was a pleasure chatting with you. And it it sounds like maybe in the uh, in the future, hopefully we'll get to have you back on to chat some, uh, some UFO horrors. Yeah, man. Just please, uh, from now on, call me Andrew. Andrew Cole. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> it was awesome to be here. Uh, and watch Mothman Prophecies, y'all. It's good, I promise. Absolutely. Some streaming service needs to pick this up because it's definitely one that I think as soon as this hits, whether it be an HBO or whatever, it's like this seems like it is prime for a, uh, a reassessment from uh, at least at least horror Twitter, as it were. But uh, Evan, thank you again for your time, man. It was a pleasure chatting horror with you for Daily Horror yeah, Habits. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.